Hey y'all, welcome back to Down to Brown. It's me, Lahari Rao, your host. Today's episode is going to be a little different in that I'm trying a new format. I'm trying a format where we have one guest and then another guest right after to talk about the same topic, but in different ways. In particular, I was inspired by the devastating death of Sonia Khan. It wasn't just a death, it was a murder. So if you're not familiar with the story, this was a recent case of a horrible situation of domestic violence and abuse. Sonia Khan was a 29-year-old photographer who was living in Chicago at the time and was in a marriage that she described as abusive and had documented her divorce and honestly her experience in order to inspire other women on TikTok. So a lot of women followed and connected to her story. A lot of South Asian women have a hard time in this process of having relationship issues, let alone if you're going through something as severe as domestic violence or abuse. Our community doesn't make it easy for us to be able to own that and feel safe and supported in transitioning out of those situations, which is already very difficult to do once it escalates into something more life-threatening, like Sonia Khan's case. Her husband, her ex-husband, traveled from Georgia to Chicago and claimed to have gone to work on their marriage, but shot her and killed her. So this was an incredibly tragic, tragic case of a woman who was living, trying to live her best life and who wanted to put her value first, was pursuing that type of life. And honestly, met a inhumane end to her life in a way that was incredibly unjust. So naturally, many people were moved by this story and shocked because I think a lot of South Asian women could see themselves in her and connect. She was very relatable. And so this really shook our community. I really thought about this topic because... Of course, in addition to the story being horrifying and haunting since, you know, you one, one reads it. But in addition to that, I realized that I'm grossly underinformed about domestic abuse and violence. I know it exists. I know a lot about it in terms of things that have happened to people I know or my families. And um, we see some things in the media, but I don't think I know enough facts. I'm not as involved as I need to be. And so... I feel very passionately about getting more involved and seeing more action on my end, and I hope that others are compelled to feel the same. We talked to Gail Paul, who is a marriage family therapist and psychologist, and has decades of experience working with individuals, couples, and families. She started out her career in community health. She'll actually talk about this more and do a better job of it. But I wanted to emphasize the fact that she has loads of experience helping folks who are affected by domestic abuse and violence. And that helps her inform a very strong opinion and really great insight into how we can better understand the psyche of the victim and the dynamics between the victim and the perpetrator. But also because I think I find it helpful not just to sit there and say, wow, I understand this better, but because it helps me really get how to exactly support, how to exactly approach a conversation about this, God forbid, if someone in your life, a loved one is going through this, if you yourself are impacted by it, what are the patterns to watch out for or to be mindful of? So I hope that you find this conversation 
incredibly informative and interesting. Next, we talk to Kavita Mera, who's the executive director of Saki. And this is a South Asian-led and surveying community that helps them have a variety of offerings to heal from and to get help from domestic abuse. It's based in New York. And she goes into how we can understand this issue as it relates. And she goes into how we can understand this issue as it connects to the South Asian community. And there are unique factors that make this prominent and worthy of our time because it happens in our South Asian communities at alarming numbers. Um, Kavita goes into some really great detail and data about this that is very helpful for us to feel mobilized in order to be part of the action or conversation. She connects it back to larger national issues too that make this very much a South Asian American thing we need to care about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and find it educational, it teaches you something new, and also perhaps compels you to take some action. And now we talk to Gail Paul, marriage and family therapist and psychologist, to understand the psyche of domestic abuse and violence situations, and more importantly, how we can better understand it to help people that we love or if we are in that situation. So I'd love to start with what your experience is in this space. Sure. So I started about 25 years ago in community mental health, which is often where therapists start. So Mm -hmm. I had different jobs at um, public schools in the San Francisco Bay Area. And often there I do family therapy. I worked with teenagers and I mostly had victims, um, uh, perpetrators know, but um, I did a lot of family therapy and also individual therapy with survivors. And they might be coming to a program for something else for substance abuse, which goes highly with being a victim of mm-hmm. violence, of course. And then, um, but it kept coming up how much domestic violence that they had experienced or witnessed. And then, um, so I worked in the public health, uh, public school system. I worked in residential and outpatient um, substance abuse. And then throughout the whole time, I also started my private practice. And there too, you know, somebody might come in for anxiety or depression or victim of a crime. And sure enough, um, lots of domestic violence incidents had been experienced by the people I've worked with. We talk about domestic violence and abuse. Like, can you ground us in terms of what it is? Mm-hmm. And um, how, when did it start to get the social importance that it should deserve as a topic? Mm-hmm. I think it probably started in the 70s. The more that women entered the economic um, sector, they were able to make money as nurses, as teachers, those early careers that were open for women. The more that women had some economic stability, the more they felt safer to um, speak out about domestic violence and more and more legislation started to come in. Um, I think even marital rape was still legal up until I'm not sure exactly what date, but that even had to be legally um, made a felony at a certain point. So definitely the 70s and a lot with the women's movement that started you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, really started to bring this topic out of the shadows, out of something shameful that yeah. uh, a lot of women who were 
stuck in their homes at the complete mercy of maybe one provider. There's only one, you know, the male is the one provider in the home. Mm -hmm. Um, They were so um, unable to speak out that they were being beaten, hit. So the more women have been able to have economic um, resources, probably the more it can be spoken about. Women had to get political power too. Um, We haven't had the right to vote for all that long, 1906, I think. So we're still pretty new to this whole thing. So the 70 different cases, you know, came to light and um, it would often seem as like, oh, it's a poor people's thing. It's something people do, you know, in parks or in, you know, but then rich people came out, you know, Nicole Brown Simpson was murdered by her Mm ex-husband and to find out all kinds of tapes from 911 calls where she was trying to get him arrested for years. So then it came, oh, somebody rich, somebody beautiful also eventually murdered by her perpetrator mm-hmm. in the 90s. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I know. It, it sounds like there's some themes of dominance and control in all this too, yes. right? Like as, as women are being able to do more, empowered to do more, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like there is a level of no stay in your place. There are a lot of things, especially when we see stories like this, where we might, I think because of the sometimes discomfort around the topic, Mm -hmm. Or people just not being able to fathom, like, how did this happen, right? Why didn't they just, that I'd love to ask you, like, what's really happening when that occurs? So when people say, why didn't they just notice all this behavior when they were dating? They should have caught this. Why did they end up committing to this person, perhaps in marriage or more long-term having kids, et cetera? Some instances, uh, the... Um, behavior was kept under wraps before they were married because for some males they might um, be from their culture from their community from their neighborhoods they see husband role let's say they get married husband role sudden suddenly they um, embody and believe in all that I'm the leader of this household. Uh, you're my property. Mm. All those kind of things start to manifest. So that's one scenario. Another is there can be hints of temper tantrums, out of control behavior. Um, but for some of us, we um, we minimize it and we say, well, but when we get married, it'll fix it. It'll make things yeah. better. Similar to that is, um, well, it was just a one-off, the way that we'll say, well, he just got really drunk that time, or he was really under a lot of pressure. So we did a lot of excusing. Also from the female side, it might be they're getting tons of pressure from their families to get married. You're of age, you're aging. Come on, you got to get married. All your friends are getting married. Um, you're, you're worried about your biological clock. And so we excuse a lot of things, a big, th- and, and a big phenomenon that goes through all the, all these themes is that often the perpetrators start to either blame the victim. You did this, you provoked me. Um, or they say it'll never happen again. It just was a one-off. I was under a lot of stress and I went off. I was having a really hard time. It'll never happen again. And they go through this honeymoon phase where they just, they do all that love bombing. Yeah, uh, behaviors and and it's hard not to get sucked into it and say, okay, okay, no, he says he'll never do it again. It'll never happen. No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Or one other scenario is that when people are pretty far along in the getting married process, a lot of times they start to feel like the 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 woman feels like I can't call off the wedding. My parents have spent all this money. Mm. All these people, the shame of calling off my my wedding is too is too humiliating. I can't do it. And I always say, if you have doubts about going through this marriage, 
call it off whatever the cost. It sounds like so many micro obstacles in the way that makes it so challenging. Like when we use the word, like, why don't you just, right? So thank you for shedding light on that. Um, there is another kind of piece that I hear, like where sometimes it's like, well, why don't you just like the minute they do that, how do you still love them? Like, how would you not fall out of love, especially after the first sign of aggression? Mm -hmm. What about then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, love is just so tricky. You know, it's such a, it's, it's a, it's an emotion, but it's also different things in our brain do a lot of attaching to our person. And so, um, oftentimes people will hate the behavior and, but still, but I love this person so much. Um, and that's the emotional part. And, and there's this big tug of war. And then there's also a lot of manipulation that can come from either your family or the perpetrator that, you know what, if you really love me, you won't provoke me like that. You mm. won't behave like that. That makes me hit you, scream at you, yell at you. So you need to love me better. And so then we take it on as like, okay, that's our test. And I need to be a better wife. We get manipulated and think we need to love them better. And mm. then bad things won't happen to me. So then we're thinking, we're going on um, this, okay, it's my project to fix this person, which this is so typical of male, female um, patterns in many, many situations where if I can just be better, the male will be okay. And then you may be getting family pressure. There's a lot of internalized misogyny that can go on with women. Um, mm -hmm across the board, it does, you know, cross cultures, cross economic status that, um, look, you know, men do this. We've all been through it. You'll get through it. You just got to stick with it. And so there's no support, you know, there's no support from the women around you. And the guy, the perpetrator can't be telling you, I love you so much. It's just that you, or mm. I love you so much. I just, and so you get this hope yeah. and I would say hope does this wrong so often. That yeah, want to get got to stop hoping at a certain right. point. Oh, and one other piece that you mentioned, which is that it can be so confusing the first time it happens mm -hmm. that you are just so discombobulated. Like I cannot, I didn't see this in my home growing up, perhaps. Um, and so, okay, maybe it's a one-off, and we hope so much it's a one-off because um, it, it's it's um, it can be so shameful to be a hit, and can be so humiliating to be hit that we keep it a secret as opposed to um, why, why, you know, why, can, why can't it be something that we just talk about and not feel ashamed about, but uh, you know, that's the whole blame the victim, which goes on. Yeah. And, well, what did you do though? You know, right. Weren't you kind of snappy with him though? Mm, that's so dangerous. Oh my gosh. Yeah. To your point about like, I was thinking even outside of circumstances like this, you might be someone who women do typically take on more labor and burden and like onus of these dynamics. So I was just thinking like, gosh, like the level of manipulation here. A, a one psychological piece that um, is important here is that often just like um, with sexual assaults, uh, especially of like, um, is the idea about grooming is oftentimes there's grooming towards uh, an actual explosion of violence. So mm -hmm. it could be, you want, uh, you want to watch out for warning signs, such as super jealousy, temper tantrums, anger management problems. And so, um, and in those 
often the perpetrator will be saying, and this is before an actual act of violence, it's just all the grooming part, is that, you know, if you hadn't have done X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have yelled. If you hadn't done X, Y, Z, I wouldn't have broken your, you know, broken that mirror of yours. I wouldn't have broken your items, but there's all these like slow escalation often that, um, that so the woman in the case, in this case, they really start to, um, um, be almost brainwashed basically. Mm. Okay. Right. I should not do that because he loves me. And often to your point about love is that you're told over and over by this person, you know, I love you so much. That's why you make me crazy and make me just go off. Yeah. Um, and so there's all this like gaslighting, um, and manipulation that leads to, um, the victim to, lives in this, like, okay, I can, this fantasy delusion that, I can control this person's behavior. I really can if I'm just so perfect and so right and so, you know, right on there, um, on point all the time mm -hmm. because they're, they're getting brainwashed into it, not only by the perpetrator, but possibly by their family, possibly by their religion, possibly by their culture. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it probably doesn't help that we have so many stories too, where we mistake that as romance. Yes. Like that type of controlling behavior or, you know, angry tantra, like where they're like, this is, this passion is my love quote, yes. quote in both Hollywood, Bollywood, like we see it. Oh yeah. Um, why wouldn't people just call the cops or tell their families? Well, in terms of telling your family, and I think Sonia um, wrote some about this is that her family was pressuring her to stay. Do not divorce. You're going to shame our name. Um, and that is not uncommon. Um, and, it, you know, the shame, it brings the humiliation. Um, and um, also, um, they, go, this, this happens a lot with sexual assault, too, is that there's a lot from the perpetrator of, um, in, in um, kind of like seeding this idea that you will not be believed. You mm. can say all this stuff, but we're not, they're not going to believe you. They're going to believe me, especially in, in, in our society where males are often put on a pedestal um, that, um, no, they're your provider. They do everything for you. Um, the, you know, women aren't believed women are crazy. Women are hysterical. That's part of our culture. Um, and so the, uh, family members often are the worst, you know, maybe the, the most, um, abandoning, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they also, they might've, um, the women might have experienced being the witness to a lot of domestic violence growing up. Oh. And so they're already like, Oh, but I saw my mom get pushed around and kicked around. So I can't go to her. She's, you know, um, or, or it's, well, this just men do this. So, you know, I should just be better and it won't happen in terms of going to the cops. Um, there can be the, the perpetrator can be scary and threatening that if you ever go to the cops, I will, fill in the blank. I will hurt our children. I will say you're a liar. I will take the children away. You mm -hmm. will never see your children again. I will hurt your sister. I will hurt your brother. Um, or the person, the, the guy might get arrested, but then they get out. And yeah. that is sometimes when after an arrest and coming back, that's when the woman is most at risk for being severely harmed. So oh, the retribution gosh. cycle. Oh, this sounds like almost like an impossible situation. So no wonder, is that why, are those some of the reasons why, you know, people, if they say, why don't they just leave that the person might be hesitant to? 
Yes. Yes. Well, in some cases, um, they have uh, been um, they don't have a phone, you know, and very oppressive, often in, in domestic abuse, abusers um, have isolated the woman, they don't let them have their own phone, or they're surveilled on their phones all the time, they don't let them drive, they take mm. away their car, if they've ever had one, they give them no money, or just enough money, you know, just to go get a few things, and they are surveilled at every moment. So when you're, you're noticing a lot of controlling behavior, jealous behavior, those are all very bad signs that domestic violence is happening or in the offing. So um, they can't leave a lot of times. And mm. if there are shelters in the area, which they aren't, they aren't everywhere. If you're in a very rural town or you're in a town where it's very public, you're too ashamed to go. The women have no um, means of leaving. Right. Uh, or if they do leave, it's, te- it's, it's um, temporary. And the, their, their husband or boyfriend pleads with them, love bombs them to get, and says, I'll never do it again. I swear to God, I'll never do it again. So that whole cycle starts, starts uh, again. Um, yeah. The cycle of violence starts again. There's escalating behavior, the incident of violence, and then there's all the love bombing honeymoon. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And then they get the woman to come back. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And so a lot of this process for the woman sounds very lonely. So yeah. like you had mentioned of the family piece too. And when we were initially talking about this, you had used the example of that Netflix documentary, um, yeah. Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey about the FLDS church. Can you talk a little bit about how that example can teach us a bit about these um, sort of traps that are created? Sure. So um, in, in the example of Keep Sweet, these girls and boys get indoctrinated from birth about selective biblical teachings, if they're even taught to read. And in I believe in some of that Keep Sweet documentary, they keep the girls very uneducated. They don't want them to learn to read. They're certainly going to be isolated. Um, no newspapers, no internet. They want, and this is typical of domestic violence at its its very um, worst, is the woman is super isolated, doesn't have any outside information about how people live on the outside, that in fact, it's wrong to, um, to assault women, and it's wrong to assault girls. So in that FLDS um, cult, uh, of keep sweet. They were told it's biblical. You obey the man. That means you have, you are forced into basic marital rape or child rape constantly, but it's biblical. You'll be betraying God. And if you betray God, you don't go to heaven. You're going to be in purgatory your whole life. So these girls are completely traumatized and brainwashed from birth on and all the women around them, their elders and on down, they are all believing it too. And a big thing is that, um, you know, it's a, um, it's a closed system. There's no outside information. Don't let them have jobs outside. And then if someone does get out, it's going to be a lot of work for them to basically reprogram their brain that they are not property of males, that males are not on a pedestal. They are completely entitled to whatever they want. I mean, that is years of reprogramming themselves to change that mindset. I'm going to switch to a little bit of like the psychology of the abuser, not because I have sympathy, but because I'm trying to understand like 
sometimes maybe this is so naive but I think of Robert Durst and I think that's when I reached out about this topic with you initially where I had watched that documentary The Jinx and I was trying to understand how can someone do this and to someone and not feel any guilt like are they a different kind of psychopath like where they don't feel empathy or guilt um don't they realize their thoughts are unacceptable, their actions are unacceptable? And like, why would you want to hurt someone that you love? Like, do you ever really love? Is love even the wrong word to use when someone is capable of that in the name of love? Right. Yeah, I think specifically in the case of Robert Durst and many like him, because he's not a one-off at all, is that um, um, you know, he he uh witnessed or believes he witnessed the suicide of his mother jumping out of a window and she died from suicide. Um, so already a super traumatized brain, um, compl- uh, you know, and if, if your mother commits suicide in front of you, if you think about what his life led up to that, I wonder if his mother and father were in a violent situation. I don't know this, but um, that, uh, often, you know, babies aren't born to be a domestic violence perpetrator. They don't come out mm-hmm. of the womb going, I'm going to beat my wife. That's what I'm entitled to. I'm going to get sex on demand and I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. Roomed into it. And so um, it's very likely that um, a child witnessed domestic violence regularly, not one, one incident of it. Oh, it happened one time. They pushed my mom. Then my mom left and we lived happily ever after. No, I would say in, um, it's very common that there's a chronic domestic violence, either atmosphere, it's going to happen at any time and then explosions of violence and, or the child is, um, being treated with violence. They are assaulted by their, uh, mom, their dad, their grandparents, whoever's, you know, their primary caretakers are um, being violent with them. And so they are groomed that you explode with violence. Uh, you get out of control. You saw it growing up. It happened to you growing up. And then you and then do it with your, your children, your wife. Um, I think that Robert just ended up, um, supposedly he had a very stern, unfeeling, um, uh, cold father. Mm. And so, um, my sense is he never attached to people. And then he, if he had some sort of attachment with his mom and then she killed herself, um, he, he learned don't attach to people. And he just kind of shut off any empathy that he had for other people. Then he marries someone who he found he could dominate. He came mm. from a much richer family and he was clear slowly but surely to devalue her, to humiliate her regularly. And she ended up with like just a broken person. Yeah. And he would constantly excuse his violence. Well, you got to know it was a mutual con, you know, mutual um, combat. That's yeah. Excuse. She brought it on. She was late. Um, and eventually he did many things. You get classic with a, a perpetrator. He isolated her. He followed her around. He um, wouldn't give her money, even though he was, you know, bazillionaire. Um, he was jealous constantly. And so she just lived in a smaller and smaller little tiny world. At what point could she have had the um, 
felt valid, valued enough as a human being to say, I'm being treated badly. She was probably indoctrinated with, right. I'm not valuable. I'm a piece of junk. I'm worthless. And my husband is just, you know, I, I just provoke him. What types of mechanisms does the abuser use to deflect responsibility? Sure. Um, often what you'll see with perpetrators is that they have a just steady diet of it mentally and in what they say of, I was victimized by this person. They started it. Hey, I'm the victim here. I did nothing wrong. And so if there is no accountability um, and if their culture puts males on a pedestal and men are, are without reproach and they're so wonderful and they're just providing, they are just in a steady diet of, Hey, I, I, I can't, I'm not, why should I be accountable for what, how I reacted when she started it? So there's no accountability, no responsibility taken. That's why they are, they won't reform. They won't change. And that's what, um, if you see groups of, um, therapists trying to change, um, and reform, you know, uh, rehabilitate domestic violence. People is the first thing is getting past their denial that they are abusive. They're violent. That they, yeah. they still project right onto their victim. Um, so that's why they're so hard to treat. So yeah. if one is in this type of dynamic and they're thinking, maybe this person will change, yes. what would you say? Um, that uh, you have been wanting this person to change for so long. Let's look at the patterns that are, are, are built in um, for how long now? And you're hoping that person will change. Are they saying they will change? Oftentimes the person will say, I won't do it again. Well, what is the perpetrator doing in order to have change? So it will never happen again. Well, they told me they promised his mother promised me. He won't hit me again. His dad promised me. He won't hit me again. He promises he won't hit me again. How, how will that happen? If there's no information there, there's no, um, kind of, these are the steps I'm going to take so that I don't beat you again. Why would you have hope? Because change yeah. is so hard for humans. It is so hard. We hate change. Humans right. hate change. And so this is when I, I start to bring in there. I hear your hope. I wonder if hope is the worst thing for you right now. Mm, yeah. Hope is killing you. It kind of sounds like then no, right? There's actually like not a way that you can uh, hold out for this person. Like that the answer would be no. Yeah, I, I, I notice I'm hesitating to say, yeah, don't hold out for it. But I'm just thinking of all the years I've been doing this. And of course, you know, this is anecdotal, but um, I cannot recall cases where it has not happened again. Yeah. Um, what changes thing is if a person leaves um, and has put into place a huge support system, safety, safety, safety all over the place. Um, that's the only way some of uh, the victim is freed from getting beaten again. Yeah. Uh, but I would not say, I could say there are, you know, couples and families where the domestic violence stopped unless the person was imprisoned, um, or that person safely got away. I'm going to click into this, uh, question a little bit more about like the 
the way that the perpetrator justifies mm -hmm. what they're doing is provoked and it's deserving mm -hmm. is the moment of the point that it escalates to death. And so that's like where I, I thought this, you know, Robert Durst's case really kind of like struck me because I was wondering like, at what point was it not enough for him? Like beating someone that you love, beating anyone is already like a huge concern. And like, you should imagine like there's some kind of regret from that individual which you had described, like, you know, like his type of case, maybe he was like finding his mechanisms to avoid ownership, right? Sure. Um, but how how can anyone rationalize that someone deserves to be killed by them? I would think in a lot of cases that the um, the murderer is dissociated from reality at the time, meaning they're just detached from reality. They're not delusional, but they are not in their bodies. And often, even when I have couples in my office and they're deep in a fight, they're arguing and loud with each other, I'll go, whoa, 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 stop, stop. And I can see the faces of the couple and they're like, oh, like they just clicked back into reality here they're mm. just gone and just in a huge storm of adrenaline they're not present add in drugs and alcohol which i think was a big big deal in the durst case yeah um, i don't know with sonia if it was i would imagine with him for example there was a lot of dissociating and many times when the um, victim is beaten and beaten and beaten and then dies it's not started with a death that that mm. the perpetrator isn't starting with i'm gonna murder her there are times where it is a murder suicide um mm. and that mindset is really interesting that generally comes from um i need to kill this person because they have so betrayed me they are and it comes from this belief deep deep belief that women are property they are property mm. of a man and i think that is the underpinning that um does so much of this damage and women were property up until very recently really in modern history women and right. children are property and so there's this delusion i mean they're, they're not psychotic at the time but but such a belief that i have to kill this person they do not deserve to live how do they betray me like this um i cannot stand for it and then they are in they clicked into a zone of okay i'm doing it i'm gonna do it and then when they commit suicide, like in Sonia Khan's case, yeah, um, how, like at that point, it's like, then they can't even take the accountability for their actions. Like, why would someone do that and then kill themselves? Couple, couple of reasons come to mind. One is um, that, um, that they do not want to bear the consequences of it. Like they are going to prison. You're going to be gone for a very long time. Um, um, the other, so they cannot bear the consequences. So they end it and they might have that in mind as they just make that decision. They click into, I'm going to kill her and then I'm going to kill myself because this cannot go on this shame, mm. this humiliation. She cannot live any longer. I must kill her because she's shaming me. How mm -hmm. dare she? But then I have to kill myself because um, I cannot bear the consequences. Um, I cannot live in this humiliation that my life, my wife left me and divorced me. I can't save face. I save yeah. face by killing myself. Or that you've got a person's personality that is on the impulsive side. 
um, because there are many cases mm. where um, there's this impulse control problem. That's a problem. That's an anger management problem. So that you want to be thinking about that in a lot of domestic violence cases is that they have really bad impulse control. And so maybe they're just going to go and talk some sense into her and get her to come back. And then she says, no, no, no. And they have, they have problems with impulse control. And so bam, they kill her. And then next thing you know, the cops are there, they're banging down the door and they impulsively kill themselves because I can't go on. I'm not going to prison. Can someone ever safely confront an abuser? Hmm. Yeah, I'm pausing because wow, it just, there's, I would say, if you try to, you're going to hit so much denial and compartmentalization. Like often the worst things we do, we put compartmentalize because they make us so ashamed of ourselves, so loathe, lo we feel so loathe, loathsome and uh, unacceptable society, unacceptable to God, unacceptable to our mothers that we compartmentalize and, and we're in denial about it. And so I think you would hit a huge wall of denial about it. Um, generally speaking, in the worst cases, in some cases, if they're young enough, if they're there, there's some conscience, conscience there, and maybe a supportive family or elders in a community or a religious tradition came to them and said, we need to help you. This must stop. Here's mm. how we're going to support you to do it. Perhaps they could. Um, I think the research is probably pretty low that there's much of that um, because of the denial um, that they're under that. Um, and, and if they've gotten indoctrinated that no, men are allowed, we are entitled to, to, to um, assault our wives. Well, this brings me to two very last important questions. Mm -hmm. One is, how can we recognize if this is happening to us without, mm -hmm. especially knowing how many filters we apply of like love mm -hmm. and shame, mm -hmm. et cetera? Yes. Okay. So um, there are red flags and warning signs um, that um, you can find a lot of these resources online. And then um, I would say, you know, get them, believe yourself. And here is a list of the most common types of warning signs that you want to be aware of extreme jealousy, possessiveness, mm -hmm. uh, unpredictability and anger. Does that kind of suggest, you know, impulse yeah. problems, um, dictating of your behavior. You're getting dictated about what you wear. You're getting attacked for supposed flirting with other mm -hmm. men. Bad sign. Um, it's so extremely controlling behavior. Um, antiquated beliefs just keep being um, used to excuse their behavior and to make you wrong. Um, you know, antiquated uh, beliefs about the role of women. It's like, but I, I hit you because I'm, I'm trying to keep you in line and, you know, I'm doing this for your own good. Oh my God. Oh that's gosh. One, right. Forced sex, um, bad sign, um, um, sabotaging your birth control. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very common because let's get her pregnant and then she'll be more submissive and more um, uh, vulnerable to me and I can hang on to her more. Um, look for blocking your access to your friends, mm. to your job, um, sabotaging your job so that you lose your job and then you have no economic power. And that is a very big vulnerability for women. Um, uh, somebody who, um, breaks a lot of your, um, like, um, 
uh, breaks your phone, sabotages your car, takes away your ID, all these things that make you less able to have a support system. Big yeah. Work. And access to things. It sounds like. Yes. Um, um, uh, I've had women come and they have ha- found out that their person, their boyfriend, girl, their boyfriend or husband put trackers on their computers, put oh, wow. key, um, keystroke, um, you know, different surveillance things on their computers. Bad sign. You know, this is yeah. not fine. Watch for getting blamed for their behavior. Mm. That, you know, you're making me you're making me have to hit you because you're going so crazy. Or I had to grab you. This is a comma. I had to grab you because you were going so crazy. And mm. I just grabbed you. It's like, yeah, but you have big black and blue marks in your arms. That's, that's violence. That does not, no, that is a bad sign. Um, embarrassing you and humiliating you and in front of other people. Mm. See, that's all the psychological um, ab- abuse that makes you less and less believing that what you're seeing is true. Yeah, Um, that's part of the gaslighting and um, not believing yourself. And it's going to make you a shell of a person less likely to um, come to the point where this is not appropriate behavior. This is wrong. I'm not standing for this anymore. Um, So humiliation, shaming, and just chronically um, devaluing you, calling you stupid and ridiculous, Absolutely, um, getting isolated from other people. Those are all the tropes of abuse. The last question I have is if you're a friend who recognizes that your friend is going through this, yes. it's very hard to tell someone, you know, how you feel about their relationship if it's not positive. And so, especially like in the cases that you've even maybe talked, uh, worked with folks like who are in these circumstances, yes. what are effective ways to be a supportive friend? Like, what have you seen work for some mm-hmm. of your um, clients, if you will? Sure. So um, you want to be mindful that most people who are um, in the are trapped in domestic violence, they feel shame, ashamed of what's happening to them, and they feel like everyone will judge them, or they don't want to burden other people with their problems. So you want to come with that in mind that I love you, I value you, I think you're going through a really hard time. I'm not judging you. I in fact value you so much. You have done nothing wrong. Hmm. You are. Um, are trapped in a very difficult situation, it seems to me. And if there's anything you ever want to talk to me about, I would invite anything you want to talk to me about, know that I will not judge you. I come with an open heart. Um, I just, um, I want you to be safe and thrive. And I want you to know you are such a valuable person and nobody can tell you differently. And I will listen to, you are not overburdening me at all. Mm. Um, people worry about that. Oh, I don't want to bring my problems on other people. People love to help. Yeah. People love to help. So invite it and don't force it. Don't come right in hard with like, here's shelter numbers. Just start with, I invite, I, I invite you open invitation. You can talk to me anytime. I will not judge you. I think you're fabulous in every way. Um, uh, I am a safe place and I value you and it's an open invitation. It is not too much for me at all. I know it start there. What if a case like Sonia Khan um, discourages them from making that step? Right. Right. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm worried about that too. It does shed a light on, wow. Um, uh, divorce can, you know, 
divorce can provoke someone to want to kill someone. And it seems so absurd and so ridiculous and so horrible that if somebody was discouraged, if you make every move you can to be as safe as possible, there's this idea about have a safety bag ready. You hide it somewhere where you secret away a few dollars, somehow get some, I never lose your identity, always have identification somewhere. And a little change of clothes. We used to call it the safe, you know, have a safety bag ready. If things start to escalate that you go, it, yeah, it's so scary. I'm even, you know, I'm even scared just in you asking me the question. I'm like, oh God, it'd be so awful if women that went back in the shadows. Um, if anything, could it be a rallying cry where we as women could be, try and bond together and be a support system if you're not being abused, but um, make sure and raise your boys to be nonviolent, raise your girls to be valuable. You are valuable. You are not inferior. You're not less than another human being by gender. I would keep it part of the conversation. If you're worried about a friend, I would say, I would lead with it. Is that mm -hmm. I think some bad stuff is happening to you. And, um, I, and you are completely not to blame for this. You might be super scared because of what just happened in Chicago. And I want to tell you that um, I want to push through that and get you safe. I will do whatever it takes to help you do that. Um, and I would not, um, you know, uh, divert away from it and just like, don't bring it up. Oh, don't say that. It's like lead with it. It's like, I know that was super duper scary. Here's some ways maybe we can learn from her and be inspired by her and have her memory make something good for other women. Thank you so much for your answer. I think that is sort of the best we can kind of approach it with. So thank you for that. And all these questions in general, not super easy to have a conversation about this, but Gail, thank you so much for providing your expertise and all this wisdom that a lot of us don't have a lot of exposure to, especially because it's not widely discussed. And so thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And now we talk to Kavita Mera, Executive Director of Saki, who talks about domestic violence and abuse in the South Asian community and why we need to care Hi, Kavita Mera. Thank you so much for joining us from Saki slash the East Coast. And I know you are the executive director of Saki. So thank you so much for spending time for us to understand this topic better. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. We're here today because I reached out to you and you were so kind to respond to me after I was inspired by the devastating murder of Sonia Khan. And I noticed that online there was more of a discussion happening that I found more unique than in the past. Um, I'm sure it's not this, not even sure. I know it's the first time it didn't happen, but there was something that moved us about Sonia Khan. And so I'd love to understand a little bit more about what you think um, about the response to this. Um, and thank you for that question. And also bringing this really important conversation to our community. Sonia was someone who was extremely relatable and um, shared her dreams and aspirations um, and her beautiful, beautiful photography with the greater world. And I think that really connected with the diaspora and her followers. And um, what she had indicated through social media was the, the difficulty through the course of her divorce, but then also wanting to find a better life and an option for living with safety and freedom and the challenges and the stigmas that she faced 
which continue today um, for survivors of gender-based violence, for survivors who um, are looking for safety and healing. Saki was founded 33 years ago, specifically because survivors were coming forward to share that they wanted to live a life of safety and healing. And so this is not a new phenomenon for our community. Sonia's powerful life and her legacy, part of that will be how she's been able to connect with the diaspora to say that this is still a prevalent issue within the course of our community, um, just to provide context to how much gender-based violence is uh, an ongoing, pervasive, silent epidemic in our community. The global average for a woman to experience gender-based violence is one in every three. The national average in the United States, it's one in every four. For the South Asian diaspora in the United States, it's two in every five. So our community is experiencing higher rates of gender-based violence more than the national average. For young boys in India um, under the age of 18, more than 50% of them have experienced child sexual abuse. The rate is actually lower for young girls under the age of 18. And so what we know statistically is that there are components of our community, members of our community who experience gender-based violence more than what the average is. And it is our responsibility as a community to provide support services, invest in organizations, and invest in those survivors so that their experience and their life is not tragically ended like Sonia's. Um, you know, Sonia was extremely relatable and this is not a new case though. In 2020, in April of 2020, Garima Kuthari was murdered um, by her husband who then died by suicide in Jersey City. And this was in the early days of the pandemic, Garima's life and, and murder did not receive the same level of attention from the community. And really that's a failing on us. It is really a failing on us, but it, but it is our responsibility. So when a survivor is coming forward, when a survivor is choosing an option for a life, we as a community must rally around that survivor and help come together to ensure their safety. This is an issue that we hear about in all cultures. It's not exclusive to the South Asian community, but I think we're starting to see that there are components that might be unique to the South Asian community. So what are some things that we might not actually as a mainstream social community not know of, you know, when it comes to South Asian women and especially any stats that we should know about how this occurs in our own diaspora? There are social handcuffs that really prevent our community from often coming forward to, um, to live, to pursue a life that doesn't include violence or trauma, right? And that is often one shame. You know, we often talk about lokyakenge. You know, that is like the universal theme across the diaspora that, that there's this fear that people will talk and um, there will be an uncomfortableness or one will be shunned from their community. There's also this concept of duty to one's family um, that is really another social handcuff that prevents survivors from coming forward. And so those are um, really um, archaic understanding of um, what is actually someone should never live with any form of violence or any form of um, trauma, like especially chronic trauma 
and so I think it's our responsibility to actually bring light to those situations because that's the only way that we're going to um, dissolve the shame and really dissolve this sense of duty. The other, the other thing that we see within the culturally specific context is that um, our experience as uh, immigrants, uh, whether we're first gen, second gen or third gen in, in the, the United States um, often will come with like um, our experiences of being of the diaspora. And so we've had, um, we, we at Saki have had cases of um, gender-based violence based on one's caste identity, based on one's age, uh, based on one's religion, um, based on um, one's, um, like oftentimes we'll see like familial abuse or in-law abuse. Um, so it's not only, um, uh, within the scope of intimate partner violence, but um, we see it across uh, multiple forms of social identities or like one's legal or immigration status. I should say not legal status, immigration status. And so that will often be used as a form of power and control from um, allowing someone to live with, with, with safety and freedom. And so that is, um, those are specific often to um, organizations or excuse me to communities that represent um, like immigrant communities and immigrant communities of color um, and so we see that a lot at Saki and that's why um, we do the work that we do because we can understand the cultural context and the intersectional experiences that survivors will come into the work with or come into their lives with right like it's not it's not just that a survivor is a survivor of gender-based violence, but they are also experiencing other forms of trauma, which we holistically would address at Saki. That makes sense. I also wanted to ask, the family unit, I think, in South Asian communities sometimes isn't super open about addressing traumas that take place in our families. And so for me, the first time that I had ever seen in the media widely seeing a domestic abuse storyline was in this movie provoked that came out back in the early 2000s with Nigeria Raya and Naveen Andrews and I remember being really shocked because I had heard things that were alluded to this um, in my family but never directly like this happened this is how we should talk about it or this is wrong you know even like the key part of it so I'm curious what role can the media play um, in raising awareness about this without also taking the message and making it Hollywood eyes, right? Like the way that sometimes they take storylines just for the sake of introducing trauma porn. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Right. And, um, I think, um, I think it's the responsibility or the opportunity for media. And that also includes social media to shed light on the work that's happening within the community, um, to shed light on like real lived experiences. Um, because, the diaspora, the South Asian diaspora is um, a community that has the most amount of economic inequity uh, than any other immigrant community in the United States. And so the reason I bring this up in the course of this conversation is because we love to play into the model minority myth. And we love to play into the success of our community and we define success by financial success. 
But we, what we don't want to talk about is the trauma that our com community experiences and the trauma that our, our families experience and how it's perpetuated or how it's allowed or how particular toxic behavior is just skirted under the rug because it's like, you know, an outlier or, um, you know, particular members of our family are allowed to get away with it based on their gender or identity. And none of that is okay. None of that is okay. So until we have those intergenerational conversations and we have all members of a family saying, you know what, we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to allow for this. And we have to talk about it because we want something better for our family and for our community. That's the only way that change can manifest. And I think the media can help us in trying to motivate to be better without having to just shine light on the trauma that our experiences have had or the experiences of trauma people have had. That's totally fair. So turning the conversation to Saki, one of the things that I really wanted to consider is when we want to take action, what can we do that's more than simply donating or resharing a post, right? And especially when it comes to someone who might be looking for help themselves, or if you know a friend that needs help. So these types of situations, I'm sure you encounter a lot. What can we do when it comes to Saki that we can connect our friends, our loved ones, or ourselves with? Yeah, so let's let's break this up into a few parts. And so if you are someone um, who some, you know, a, fa a family member or friend discloses to you that they're experiencing gender based violence, um, the first thing is, is to believe them. And it's not to actually question their experiences. And it's not to dissect their experiences, but to demonstrate that you're there for them, and that you're to support them in whatever way that they need it. Um, and so we fundamentally believe at Saki that the survivor is an agent of change in their life and that they are steering the ship in the course of their journey. And our responsibility as an organization is to support their vision, nothing beyond that. Um, I always encourage folks for um, them to reach out to organizations like Saki to have a safety plan in place um, so that they can build a safety plan if they're experiencing harm in any capacity so that they have mechanisms in place to ensure their, their, their especially their physical safety, but their safety in any particular capacity. And folks can call Saki's helpline to help to access um, an advocate so they can work on their safety plan. And, and, and so that's, that's when, working with survivors in the community, or you personally know a survivor and you want to support them. Um, how one can potentially uh, work with or support organizations like Seki, um, of course, um, as you mentioned, you know, of course, making a gift to the organization makes a demonstrable impact in the work that we do because we're um, a community-based organization really serving as a backbone to a community. And so $10 a month or $100 a month or $5 a month, that all makes a huge difference. Outside of making a gift, um, one can volunteer with Saki. Uh, we always have an open call for volunteers, especially around our helpline, um, because we're expanding our helpline um, to a 24-hour operation because of the great need we're seeing in the community. Um, you can host a panel discussion for us or a community-based event for us. You can get your friends together and host a conversation about what does gender-based violence look like in the community, and you'll have a Saki representative come and join you. Um, you can host a webinar for us, you know, anything virtual that feels right to you. Um, you can join our Young Professionals Council or our board, right? All of those spaces are, um, 
we're actively recruiting for and thinking very consciously about you know our footprint and how to be more formally involved in the work that we do. So there are um, there are multiple touch points in which one can engage with and learn about Saki um, and also support the organization without having to make a direct financial contribution. Thank you for that. You truly inspired me. I feel like there's so many ways, like there are no, no excuses if you feel passionate about this. And so in addition to the website, which I'll link later, I'd love to ask if you have any um, direct contact, like if someone wanted to do something where they're like, we, we have a lot of platforms now, right? Online that could do panels or raise awareness uh, on this. What are the best ways to reach out to be able to do that? Yeah, I mean, um, we do have our website. You can you can email me directly. Uh, my email address is on our website. Um, and it's just my first name dot my last name at Saki.org. Um, and so I can put folks in touch with the appropriate team members to learn more about how to get involved and how to share the work that we do. And I can't stress um, the need right now. And so Sonia's horrific, horrific murder um, has brought light to something that we've seen um, really building within the community. So just to, to contextualize a little bit more, you know, we, when we compare January to June from 2020 to 2022, we see a 43% increase in new clients and a 30, 36% increase in helpline call numbers those numbers are only gonna to continue to rise. So if there is an interest in wanting to get involved, if there is an interest in wanting to amplify our work, um, we really need the support right now. We truly do because we, there, is a, there is a need. I'm glad you mentioned that because I know in also broadly in the US and I think globally they've talked about, especially in the pandemic in the last couple of years as people have had to go into lockdown or quarantine, sometimes you're doing that with families where you're not safe. And so that is such a key point. And thank you for bringing that about. Also, is there a larger national connection to anything that's going on that we should be mindful of? In, in 2020, um, six individuals representing four organizations started to actively have conversations about the need for an umbrella group, uh, an umbrella platform that would sort of serve under or sit over, I should say, the 30 plus South Asian survivor organizations across the country. And um, in 2020, 2021-ish, South Asian SOAR was born, um, which is the national umbrella to all of the work that we do and serves as the advocacy and capacity building platform. Uh, it received seed funding, it's got an executive director and a team and is really mobilizing around some of the national challenges and has, has, um, has helped um, sharpen the conversation around um, South Asians and reproductive justice, um, South Asians and, and, uh, and our response as a community around Sonia's murder. And also, you know, we more locally at Tucky and nationally need to think about across the community, what is the South Asian community's relationship to gun violence? Because this is a moment in which um, a national issue around sensible gun control is squarely brought into the conversation and the experience of South Asians. And, and this has happened through you know, um, mass murders like Oak Creek, but it hasn't been part of our national dialogue. It hasn't been part of our lived experience, but this is like, you know, for, for someone to take, um, to, to, to have a gun to go across multiple state lines, drive from 
Georgia to Illinois to murder their, their partner, their former partner. Um, I think it speaks to also just how our community needs to be more active in more national conversations because it impacts our community. We aren't immune to this. Um, we saw that at Oak Creek and we're seeing it now. And so I think we need to have those conversations. I'm so glad you said that because I think it's sometimes difficult. I think, um, you know, my theory is our community as our parents might've immigrated, they, there's a connection to the country and how they've come, but sometimes they don't get as involved with the issues that plague the nation um, and might see it a little separate from the story that they're creating with their families. And so sometimes I think a lot of us, first gen, second gen, we struggle with trying to even convince our parents why we care about these things. And so thank you for bringing in that very good data point and connection to that, because that helps us see the urgency in getting involved in the conversation and being a member represented in those. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. You know, South Asians, I think, um, give the greatest amount of remittances to uh, the, the country of origin more than any other immigrant community. What we have to recognize is this is home now. None of us, most of us are not moving back to South Asia. This is home. And so our experiences, our investments, our future is here. Um, and so it is critical that our community invests in here, whether that's at the local level, at community-based organizations like SECI, or whether that's through more policy changes and, 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 and national conversations like sensible gun control, reproductive justice, all of this directly impacts our community and we cannot ignore it. What a strong call to action way of ending our conversation. So I'll actually leave it at that without even tainting what you said, because that was such a lovely uh, inspirational statement to end on. So thank you so much, Kavita Mira. I am so, so grateful for the time that you spent with me and Dr. Brown to talk about this. Thank you for having me.